All right, all right. I'm a little biased. I get that, but I think the practice of obstetrics is super rewarding. And of course, let's be honest, it can be a little stressful, right? Especially about things that we just don't have a lot of control over because we just want the best for our patient and for these newborns. But one of those things that just gives us this built-in anxiety is the issue of preterm birth. Yeah, now that iron progesterone is gone, where we're still dealing with this formidable opponent, which is preterm delivery. Well, preterm births carry their own set of problems, despite our best intent to minimize their occurrence. And one of those issues is intraventricular hemorrhage, or IVH. Now, we have a lot of OB issues, a lot of OB things that we can try to do to minimize IVH, but some things are just out of our control. I'm thankful that in medicine in general, we don't carry the the burden of one condition all by ourselves. We've got colleagues that we can uh, share the the load and share the treatment plans with so that they can also be involved to do the best for the patient. Of course, I'm talking about our colleagues here in neonatology because we do share this kind of watershed area when it comes to IVH. From the obstetric standpoint, we know that premature birth is the leading risk factor for IVH. Although we don't actually take care of those babies after delivery, that's neonatology, but we do hold hands, we do come together on that middle of that bridge because we know what happens in the world of obstetrics and the interventions that we do as obstetricians and as obstetrical care providers absolutely can influence what happens in the world beyond the curtain in neonatology. So in this episode, I thought it'd be interesting for us to talk about IVH. Yeah, now that IM progesterone is gone and vaginal progesterone seems to be getting a little bit of new life and at least staying in the ring for the fight, we do have this formidable opponent of preterm birth. And one of its sequelae that just kind of hasn't gotten a lot of the attention that it should is intraventricular hemorrhage. Now, This is a really big deal because IVH, especially severe intraventricular hemorrhage, has a lot of very poor long-term outcomes. And we're going to talk about this. This has also been recently in new publications. Yeah, we're going to talk about this because delayed cord clamping and how it's done, whether we should milk the cord or not, is also intimately involved and intimately related to this topic of IVH. So we're going to talk about the OB implications for intraventricular hemorrhage of the newborn. Not in how you take care of that from the neonatology standpoint, because we want to stay in our lane. But here's some real world questions that we need to answer and that we do have answers for. Hey, in the extremely preterm birth, even if the child is vertex, should we be doing a C-section to try to protect the baby's head from intraventricular hemorrhage? Ooh, that's super controversial. And the data at first glance is super conflicting. But when you step back and look at it as a whole, it's not conflicting at all. And there's an answer for that question. And then the other question is, what's the role of steroids? Does that help prevent IVH? We all get that that's for fetal lung maturation. But that does that also have an impact on intraventricular hemorrhage? We're going to talk about that. What about delayed cord clamp and cord milking? Because brand new data just came out last month regarding at what gestational age cord milking can be considered without concern for IVH. That's interesting and that's brand new data. And then we're going to talk about mag sulfate for fetal neuroprotection because you may think that it has something to do with IVH and you may be right and at the same time, you may not be. 
Yeah, that's a lot of stuff to cover. We're going to cover all of those questions, those real-world clinical conditions and conundrums, and we're going to try to make sense of it in this episode. Why? Because the next time that you're at bedside with a patient with extreme preterm birth, defined as a preterm labor or delivery under 32 weeks, these are conversations that we need to have, not just with our patient and with their family, but obviously with our neonatologist. So let's cover the OB issues to consider with IVH right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls. All right, everyone. Yes, we're going to focus on IVH, intraventricular hemorrhage, specifically in preterm babies because that's usually who gets it. But remember that it's not it's not impossible for term newborns to have IVH. It's just less common. We're going to talk about that as well, including things that we do like vacuum or forceps and how that's possibly related to some occurrences at term of IVH. Because, yeah, some things that we do, trying to do the best job that we can, sometimes things happen, right? So we're going to talk about uh, forceps and vacuums, specifically around intracranial bleeding as potential risks for term newborns. But specifically, when people talk about IVH, they're talking about its occurrence in prematurity in preterm deliveries, because that's typically who's affected, all right? So remember that intraventricular hemorrhage is, here it is, guys, shocker, bleeding inside the ventricles. Duh. You see that? Intraventricular hemorrhage? Wow. See, that you all learned something already. <laughs> That's so stupid. I mean, intraventricular hemorrhage is bleeding within the little room, uh, rooms within the baby's uh, brain. And this stuff really is super fascinating, okay? Because we're going to talk about some n- brand new data that, look, we all get historically, oh, grade three and four. We can explain what that is in a minute. That's bad. But but new data that is coming out is like, hey, man, maybe grade one and two, just even that, even when it doesn't uh, get into the brain parenchyma, maybe even grade one and two are some things that we need to be on the lookout for. Now, now that's not linked to cerebral palsy like grade three and four is. But there are some things that are now being looked at, like mm, maybe this has neurodevelopmental issues. Maybe this has some cognitive impairment, uh, otherwise known as lower IQ. All this is brand new data, guys, brand new. So it is timely. This is stuff that is in our literature as people keep that flashlight, that spotlight on preterm birth until we get something else that can hopefully uh, be our salvation here uh, against this dreaded enemy. All right. But but let's go back to I want to start with the background and the basics of, of what we're talking about. When we're talking about intraventricular hemorrhage. So part of this is going to be basic science. Some of this is going to be anatomy. But you got to understand this. And then we're getting into the clinical implications. All right. Because we kind of forget like, wait a minute, what's going on in the ventricles? Why are they bleeding? What, what's going on in there? So we do have to remind ourselves of this. All right. And when we talk about intraventricular hemorrhage, the reason that it's much more common in premature babies, not only because premature babies are much more fragile to begin with, uh, and they're not fully developed, but that's where the germinal matrix is most vulnerable because the germinal matrix, which are these little chandelier thingies inside these rooms, the caves called the ventricles, those are very delicate uh, little blood vessels uh, that are prone to bleed. Okay. And that's our issue here. And it's not just outward pressure being put on the head. 
There's a lot of reasons why germinal matrix bleeding can occur. Uh, shifts in blood pressure, acidemia, asphyxia, uh, and hypoxia, and metabolic acidemia. All of these things affect the permeability, the breakability of these germinal uh, matrix vessels. And the reason that it's less likely in term babies is because those germinal matrix vessels, those little blood vessels, uh, tend to go away as EGA progresses. Okay, so uh, it, let's say you have a baby born at 40 weeks. I mean, they just, their germinal matrix is just not there. I mean, it, they kind of regress. They can have brain bleeds for other reasons, but germinal matrix specifically because they still exist in the premature interval, that's why IVH and prematurity go hand in hand. That area of the ventricles, the, they call the germinal matrix, is super vascular and they're, they're very friable and they're very immature capillary vessels. That's why they're easily breakable, all right? They also harbor some neuroglial cells. So they're not just blood vessels. They also have these, these uh, neuronal protective cells that line them. This structure localized adjacent to the fetal ventricular system actually starts to go away by the 36th week. Remember that, as we said before, it's not like you're going to say, oh, the baby's born at 40 weeks or 42 weeks. We should check out their germinal matrix. It's gone. Okay, so by the 36th week, they have almost entirely regressed. That risk of IVH is inversely proportional to gestational age and is an important problem for extremely premature infants. So that's a clinical pearl. Remember, the risk of IVH is inversely proportional to gestational age. What that means is the lower the gestational age, the higher the risk of IVH. And here's another clinical pearl. IVH is typically not present at delivery. It develops after birth. So as soon as the baby's out, please don't tell your, neuro your neonatologist, hey, can we do a an ultrasound right now to see if there's germinal matrix bleed? Now, you can do that to look for other kinds of bleeding, like a subgaleal bleed or a cephalohematoma or something else or a subdural hematoma, but you're not going to see a germinal matrix bleed immediately at delivery. I guess, I mean, that could happen. It's just extremely rare. And the reason is, is that it takes hours for this to form. Now, according to the data, about half of IVHs occur within the first six hours of life, and hemorrhage rarely occurs after the fifth postnatal day. All right? So again, a lot of clinical pearls right off the bat. This is typically not found at delivery, although delivery factors may influence that. We're going to talk about it in a minute. Um, but it does happen within the first few hours, and then if it's not there by the fifth postnatal day, it likely will not happen. Okay, so that's that's a good news that if you haven't seen it by day of life five, you probably aren't going to. So that's good. This is why a newborn routine head ultrasound is typically recommended for all newborns born under 32 weeks, but not immediately at time of birth unless there's other neurological signs or symptoms going on. Typically, this is done once between day five and seven, and then it can be repeated on day 14. All right, so typically done around the first week of life and then around uh, the second week of life. Remember, guys, what we're talking about here. We're talking about IVH with a special emphasis coming up on some interventions that are at our disposal, like corticosteroids, how we do delayed cord clamp, will a C-section prevent against this, how does mag sulfate work? We're going to talk about all of that in a minute, all right, with a special little touch also on, on this happening at term. Now, obviously, because there's no germinal matrix, as we said, at term, it's not... 
uh, germinal matrix bleed, but it's other types of intraventricular hemorrhage uh, and intracranial hemorrhage that can occur by things that we do, like forceps applied incorrectly or bad vacuum. Happens rarely, but we're going to talk about that in just a minute, okay? But specifically, IVH, intraventricular hemorrhage, is a preterm issue. And that's what we're trying to focus on here in terms of the pathogenesis. Even though we know that there's not just one thing that can cause IVH, the truth is this is a multifactorial problem. But it all starts in the region of the germinal matrix in that premature birth, okay? So it all starts right there. And then that bleeding, that insult, gets transferred or expands out of that zone into the uh, overlying parenchyma. So this is how IVH evolves. This is a complicated issue, and it's not a simple reflection of EGA alone. So here's the, the weird thing, the weird stuff that nobody can figure out. Because despite the anatomical and the hemodynamic predisposition in preterm babies, uh, it's known that IVH sometimes just never happens at super extremely premature children. And on the other hand, serious IVH can occur unexpectedly in older preterm babies, like closer to 32 weeks, and who had a completely stable prenatal course and intrapartum uh, experience. So you're like, wait, what is going on? So while EGA by itself is a standalone factor, it's a standalone risk factor, sometimes it's not enough. There are other things that can push that, that predisposition even more to get an IVH episode. Here's how complicated this is because, yes, prematurity absolutely is a standalone risk factor for IVH, but it's not in and of itself solely responsible because there are all of these other factors that go into play. For example, IVH is less common in females. How about that? It's less common in the black race, and it's less common in babies that have been exposed to antenatal corticosteroids. Now, remember, we're going to talk about steroids in just a minute, uh, but, but yes, steroids outside of fetal lung maturity. See, there's another clinical pearl. Yes, that definitely has a role here, guys. Don't forget the antenatal corticosteroids, super good for the lungs, also super good for reduction of IVH. That was recently looked at in a Cochrane review in 2020. We're going to address that in just a minute. Intraventricular hemorrhage is also more common in the presence of mechanical ventilation in babies that have respiratory distress or other kinds of bleeding like pulmonary bleeding, those who have pneumothorax, those that have been exposed to intraamniotic infection, asphyxia, and those who are septic. So all of these factors, you see, multifactorial, all of those factors play a role. So if you ever asked, all right, what is the biggest risk factor for IVH? Ah, easy, hands down, EGA. But that's not sufficient in and of itself to get it because all of these other factors help push it to its occurrence. So in those babies that are at risk, defined as those under 32 weeks, especially in those who are on me mechanical ventilation or had IAI, or definitely if they are preterm and have sepsis, then neonatal cranial ultrasound is the diagnostic tool of choice for this condition, okay? You can get fancy and do MRIs, but intracranial ultrasound, looking for intraventricular hemorrhage, that is the old standard. 
About 25 to 50 percent of germinal matrix and IVH cases are asymptomatic and diagnosed with this routine screening. So the question is, well, if they're asymptomatic, why do you screen? Well, hello. I mean, STIs are asymptomatic and we screen for them for the same reason, because you're looking for progression. You're trying to block sequelae. So it is good news that 25 to 50 percent seem to be asymptomatic, especially in grades one or two, which we'll define in just a minute. But but the important thing is to know that it's there so you can track it. So remember that 25 to 50% of grade one or two are asymptomatic. However, neurological findings is kind of the norm, unfortunately, in severe cases of IVH, in other words, grades three or four. The major complication of germinal matrix IVH in preterm babies are periventricular hemorrhagic infarction, post-hemorrhagic ventricular dilation, periventricular leukomalacia, and cerebellar hemorrhage. You see, guys, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to prevent these sequelae. And again, I'm going to get into it in a minute, where even grade one or two, it seems that, according to brand new data released this year in 2023, even that is not completely innocent and benign. It's not linked to CP, but grade one or two may be linked to other issues that we'll address in a minute. Remember that intraventricular hemorrhage, especially moderate and severe, grade three or four, is an important cause of newborn and infant mortality and morbidity. Germinal matrix IVH remains a serious problem because of the increased survival of extremely low birth weight infants. That's defined as less than a thousand grams. So on the one hand, we're like, woohoo, hey, if you, your child weighs under a thousand grams, we can get that kid discharged. And that is fantastic. We should celebrate that. But of course, the trade-off is, is that sometimes that premature birth and or the things that we do to help that baby sustain life has other sets of issues. And this is important because when we're at that bedside with a patient in active preterm birth at, say, 28, 29, 30 weeks, these are things that we have to address. And I'm sure they're going to have questions like, oh my goodness, should I just, shouldn't I just have a C-section to protect this baby? Even for the baby's vertex. We're going to talk about that because if the baby is 28 weeks in breach, yeah, that's a section, right? Because of the disproportionate size of the baby's body to the baby's head, because they have big head, little body, like little alien bodies, then you can get head entrapment. So for sure, that's a section. But what about cephalic? So the data is, it looks a little weird, but when you step back holistically and take a look at the data as a group, there is a solid answer. When patients ask, ask, oh, I know this baby is, is coming in the right way, it's head down, but you know, it's so early, shouldn't we just do a section? You can confidently say, blank. And I'm going to tell you that in a minute, okay? So this is an issue as we've gotten so good at resuscitating little tiny premature babies. This is why IVH, we have to be aware of this thing. And we need to know what these numbers mean, grades one, two, three, and four, so that we can not only prepare the patient, but have these conversations, of course, with our neighborly, friendly neonatologist. All right, podcast family, I know that we're focusing on premature infants because those are the ones at risk. However, as we've already said, it's not impossible that term infants also have various types of intracranial bleeding. Yes, you can get the subdural, and we'll talk about it separately. You can get the cephalohematoma, but term babies can actually get IVH, although it's a whole other pathophysiology than in preterm infants. 
the following are relative frequency of the location and origin of IVH in term infants. So listen to this. Okay, the biggest category is choroid plexus bleeds. That's 35%. Choroid plexus, different than germinal matrix, all right? Next biggest category is 24% of intracranial bleeding at term is located in the thalamus. Next, 17% are in remnants of the germinal matrix. And you're like, wait a minute, you said that goes away at term. Yeah, in like almost everybody, but some kids have these little remnants that are super fragile and they can bleed. Next, 14% happen in the periventricular brain parenchyma. So not within the ventricle, but periventricular bleeding. And we're going to talk about why that matters because there's important communications and tracks right around the ventricles that if those tracks are messed up, that leads to neurological sequelae. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. And then the last group, about 10%, is no specific origin. In other words, it just kind of happens in odd places because stuff happens. So in term infants, preterm, we get that that's IVH. Almost, almost universally germinal matrix related. But at term, its majority is in the choroid plexus, uh, or the biggest percentage is choroid plexus, and then comes thalamus, then comes germinal matrix remnants, and then periventricular locations, all right? So the take-home point is that term intracranial bleeding is different than preterm, where preterm is almost always related to a fragile germinal matrix presence. Now that we've laid that down, let's talk about the four grades of IVH when we come back. So there are four different grades of IVH. Grades one and two are a smaller amount of bleeding. Most of the time, there's no long-term neurological issues, although new data says maybe there's some neurocognitive issues. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Grade one is also referred to as subependymal region bleeding and or limited germinal matrix bleed. Okay, so that's the mildest type. Grade two is where bleeding occurs inside of the ventricle and fills the ventricle itself. Grade three is when the ventricles are now enlarged and compresses the periventricular parenchyma. Okay, so it's not just filling. Now they are expanded, their abnormal size, and the ventricles are large. Grade four is now bleeding that is now leaving the ventricle and entering into the brain tissue, especially the ones surrounding the ventricles themselves. So grade one is bleeding just within the germinal matrix. Grade two is where the blood now fills the ventricles. Grade three is now ventricular dilation pushing or putting pressure on the periventricular uh, brain tissue. And then grade four is bleeding within the brain tissue itself. What we've just discussed is the general categories, grade one through four. That's called the Papil criteria. There's also another criteria called the Volpe criteria or Volp criteria. It depends on where you're at in the country, V-O-L-P-E. And that gives things more percentages, like grade one is less than 10% of the ventricular area uh, involved by bleed. Grade two, which is... Uh, blood filling the ventricle without dilation, that's 10 to 50% of the ventricular area involved. But most people are comfortable using the papil criteria, which is what we've discussed, which is very descriptive. Just remember that the Volpe criteria uh, actually gives percentages of of involvement of the ventricles and or uh, periventricular brain matter um, by percentage uh, involvement. That's Volpe. But most people use the papil criteria.
Remember that these can be unilateral or bilateral. And in other words, they can be asymmetric or very symmetric types of bleeds. So just because something is happening in one ventricle, like, oh, it's just a little bit of blood in, in one ventricle, and the other one is all you know blown out, you, you escalate the level of bleed, all right? So even though it can be asymmetric, you always give it the maximum grade based on the most involved finding. Now, here's a link with cerebral palsy. I think it's super fascinating. We're going to talk about the clinical implications here in a minute, but here's why grade three and four are linked to neuromuscular issues, okay? Because the occurrence of CP with IVH makes a lot of sense if you understand what are the tracks, what are, what's the highway that's right around these lakes, Okay, remember my my analogy sometimes makes sense to me. If they don't make sense with you, just go with it. But the lakes are the ventricles because they're filled with cerebral spinal fluid. And then the highways are the, the brain tracks, the neurons. All right. So here's why this matters, because the anatomical structure of the periventricular uh, brain matter, okay, the stuff that's right around the ventricles, th those are very tightly related to the spinal motor tracks. You see why that makes sense? Those are where the spinal motor tracks are laid. The white matter is arranged such that those tracks that innervate the lower extremities are nearest the ventricles. That's followed by those that innervate the trunk, the arms, and finally the face. So in other words, it's real estate. What's around the lakes are the things that control motor function. That's why it's related to CP. Is that fascinating or what? So this anatomical arrangement accounts for that greater degree of motor dysfunction of the extremities compared to the face, like spastic hemiplegia in unilateral lesions and spastic diplegia or quadriplegia when there's bilateral lesions. See, it all makes sense. So in addition to destruction of the periventricular motor tracts, destruction of the germinal matrix itself obviously can also occur, and that has long-term effects on unlikely cognitive function because of loss of those glial cells that's involved in the germinal matrix as well. And I'm going to cover that issue on IQ and cognitive behavior in just a minute. The development of germinal matrix or IVH appears to happen in two steps. The first is that there's loss of cerebral autoregulation, and that's followed by rapid changes in cerebral perfusion, like reperfusion injury, okay? And that's because the arterial pressure in the germinal matrix is super, super fragile and can't regulate itself. So anything that messes up that flow, like hypoxia, mechanical ventilation, uh, potentially uh, external uh, stressors like pressure on the head, all of these things, and even metabolic conditions like coagulation factors issues or metabolic acidemia, all of those things can, can affect that autoregulation that's already just trying to, to paddle and stay above water. Anything can throw that for a loop, and that's why germinal matrix bleeding occurs predominantly in super young premature infants. Since we mentioned these lower grades of IVH, there is relatively new data 
that maybe grades one or two are not completely benign. Right? I learned that oh, it's just grade one. Oh, it's grade two. Don't worry about that one. That's totally going to resolve. Uh, just a, just an effect of prematurity. But but there's data now that may, maybe that's not the case. In 2020, in the American Journal of Neuroradiology, researchers used neuroimaging to try to get more information about the subsequent outcomes of these babies that had low-grade intraventricular hemorrhage. What they found was, yes, lower-grade bleeding is not involved with CP, but there were also some neurofunctional abnormalities that you can actually see on neuroimaging. Some brain activity in parts of the brain were abnormally affected compared to those that did not have uh, these lower levels of bleeding. Like even in the somatosensory cortex, there were things that were off. All to say, man, things that happen in the brain, even though we, we can think oh, it's just relatively minor, potentially there's some, there's some issues here. And, and this could affect things like neurocognitive development. Now, that was in 2020, but released this year in July of 2023. Y'all, that's just six months ago. In a study titled Childhood Outcomes After Low-Grade Intraventricular Hemorrhage, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, data presented there in that systematic review based on the author's pretty good design, they they found that low-grade IVH was associated with specific neurodevelopmental impairments at school age. This led support to their theory that low-grade IVH is not an entirely benign condition. Yes, it's not related to CP, and so that's good, but even grades one or two bleeding could be associated with lower IQ at school age. All right. This is why it's important to be aware of these things. Um, and just know, man, see how things change so quickly. Oh, I thought, oh, grade one or two. That's how I train. Don't worry about that. It's nothing to worry about. They'll be fine. So it's only grade three or four you have to worry about. No, man, bleeding internally in the brain of a premature infant potentially has other issues. So again, that just came out in July of 2023. The first listed author is Felipa Res, that's R-E-E-S, and the journal is the Journal of Developmental Medicine in Child Neurology. Yep, pretty scary stuff. I mean, grade three and four is the worst, but one or two, yeah, maybe not entirely benign. So the way to prevent IVH ideally would be trying to prevent preterm birth. But of course, you understand that's an ever-going saga with a progesterone soap opera that we've discussed many times before. And now that IM progesterone is kaput, well, we're still holding out some hope for vaginal progesterone. So having said that, if we can't be completely preventative from preterm birth, what other OB interventions do we have? So here's where I really want to get into our, our, the crux of the discussion, all right? Are there things that we can do, like does doing a C-section, should that be considered? Some have brought that up and some have recommended that, but ACOG does have a stance. We're going to cover mode of delivery. We're going to talk about uh, delayed cord clamping. We're going to talk about magnesium sulfate and how that works. And then, of course, um, we're going to talk about a little bit about anti-neurocorticosteroids. So now let's turn our attention to what we can do, what we have in our back pocket to try to reduce the IVH occurrence. Let's get into these things next. Ooh, let's start with a good controversial thing, huh? How about mode of delivery? Does mode of delivery have an impact on IVH. Now, we're not talking about breach. That's a different issue. Let's say we have a 
29-weeker who's actively laboring preterm. Baby's head is down, so baby is vertex. And the patient asks you, oh my gosh, baby is so small. True. Oh my gosh, baby weighs so small, weighs so little. True. Shouldn't we be doing a C-section to prevent the baby from having some complications? So what's the answer? I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, that little fragile head with a fragile germinal matrix is going to be going down the chute of the vagina. Uh, Shouldn't we be doing a C-section to protect it? Some have recommended that. Well, truth is, there is data that has shown less IVH in extremely preterm infants that were otherwise cephalic. But the problem is, is that you can't just say just motor delivery by itself was protective in this case because each one of those deliveries has a bunch of other interventions. So just to be clear, yes, there is data, although it's got some some methodological issues that it says, hey, maybe a C-section is protective. One of that one of those publications came out of the German neonatal network uh, that was published in 2017. Like, hey, maybe this is a thing. Maybe we should consider C-section in those babies that are born, uh, like, especially under 28 weeks, even if they're vertex. So, yes, there is data for that. However, the majority of the data and ACOG stance is that extreme prematurity in the otherwise vertex child is not a standalone indication for C-section. Why? Because doing a, a C-section at extremely premature gestational age likely would be classical, likely has other risks of maternal complications and or bleeding, like getting into the uh, uterine vessels because the lower uterine segment is not made. So to be very clear, as was very well stated in one of the publications in 2013, quote, there is not enough evidence to evaluate the use of a policy of planned immediate cesarean for preterm babies. So, yeah, it's just not enough. Even ACOG and SMFM, they do discuss cesarean section for preterm babies in the most vulnerable cases, those having birth in the perivirable interval. They state in the obstetric care consensus number six, which oddly and coincidentally was also from 2017, they state, quote, Routine cesarean delivery is not recommended for the indication of periviable delivery alone because it has not been shown to decrease mortality or, here it is guys, intraventricular hemorrhage after early preterm birth. They go on to say, quote, randomized control trials comparing cesarean delivery with vaginal delivery have not been done in the periviable period, although limited retrospective data provide some support for cesarean delivery in the presence of malpresentation. Here it is. Delivery for women in the periviable period should be individualized, recognizing increased maternal morbidity associated with cesarean delivery, particularly if the need for classical cesarean delivery is anticipated. They go on to say as our last point, cesarean delivery before 22 weeks of gestation is appropriate only for maternal indications, end quote. So the short of it is, while they do recognize, hey, maybe you can individualize it. I mean, it's, it's part of shared decision making. So they do recognize that they leave the door open. It's, it's never like a hard no because the patient has the right to request it as part of shared decision making. But does the evidence support that it's protective? Not universally, and right now the burden of evidence says no, even though, again, just as we just read, some some retrospective data says could be helpful. So I'll be very clear. Is there data that doing a C-section, even for babies in the vertex presentation, for extremely premature infants, that a C-section could be protective of IVH? Yes, there's data. 
Now, is that good data? Not necessarily. So ACOG's stance, as we've just read, is that routine cesarean delivery is not recommended just because of extreme prematurity, even in the periviable time frame. However, they do leave that door open. So it is okay to tell patients, look, baby's head down. I, I don't recommend a C-section for this. I, I just don't think that that's necessary. Plus a C-section at 25 weeks is really rough. Uh, and we'd have to cut the uterus in a certain way, which means you'll never be able to labor vaginally again. But I want to let you know that it's it's possibly a thing. But medically, right now, our college, American College of OBGYN, says it, it just, it's just not a routine thing to do for everybody. Part of shared decision-making. How's that for confusing and controversial? <laughs> so just to be very clear, extreme preterm babies in the vertex presentation is not a standalone indication de facto in and of itself for cesarean section. Maybe should the patient be adamant about it as part of shared decision making, something you can address if they understand the risks and the future implications of likely a classical C-section. Ooh boy, nothing like tiptoeing around a very sensitive subject, and that is really a very touchy one, very sensitive. But let's be very honest, right now, that is not an indication. Extreme preterm birth, if the baby is vertex, that is not an indication for C-section. So just to be clear, ACOG leaves that door open. I realize that it's a little, you know, that touchy-feely, being a patient advocate and shared decision-making. It's also where we come in as patient advocate and and, and a voice for, for the data to go, man, it's just not evidence-based. But Again, if the patient wants something, then that's that's fine if you both agree and you feel comfortable doing that. But but listen to this. There was another publication that came out in 2022. That's just last year out of plus one that took a look at exactly this thing over a 10 year interval. How about that's a long time, guys. 10 year. Now, it was retrospective, but man, sure. If you're going to see some trend, you would figure you'd see it over a 10 year interval. Okay, so the first author of this publication was Luca, and the title was Birth Trauma in Preterm Spontaneous Vaginal and Cesarean Section Deliveries, a 10-Year Retrospective Study. And they were looking for uh, all kinds of trauma, and one of those that they looked at was, was intraventricular hemorrhage. This looked at data from 2007 to 2017. Man, that's a lot of work. And data, data, analysis, analysis. Let me just tell you what they found because we got other things to fry. Here's what they concluded. Quote, C-section was not protective of injury at birth. When all types of birth trauma were considered, there was, they were more common in spontaneous vaginal delivery, so it looked like it favored a C-section. However, when stratified by severity of birth trauma, Preterm babies delivered vaginally were not at higher risk of major birth trauma than those delivered by C-section. In other words, just as big groups, ah, you're like, ah, C-section, they did better. But when you actually look at the severities, they were the same between the two groups. Okay, so overall, like big buckets, you're like, oh, C-sections did better. But to be very clear, if you actually look at the specific things that are bad, okay, the, the real severe complications like grade three or four IVH, no difference between the two groups. And that just came out last year in 2022. So that's a nice supplement to ACOG's stance. Something we can tell patients is, look, I, I, I could do a section. I don't think it, it, it's going to help because the data is not there. Now, if the baby's breech, that's something else. Okay. So to be very clear, it seems that the majority of the data does not favor C-section in the vertex child just because they're premature. Oh my goodness, I just saw how long we've been 
talking here. It's like almost close to 40 minutes. We got to wrap this thing up because we still got some things we got to cover. So very quickly regarding mode of delivery, although there is some controversial and conflicting data, most experts conclude regarding delivery and IVH that most of the available evidence does not show that mode of delivery is a significant independent factor influencing the rate of IVH. Okay, everybody get that? So most authors agree, according to all the commentaries, that mode of delivery in extremely premature infants, of course, excluding breach, we're we're, we're talking about C-section or vaginal for vertex babies, that mode of delivery in and of itself really is not one of the factors here that we need to worry about. So if the baby is cephalic, vaginal delivery seems to be totally fine, the way to go, although there is some conflicting data with C-section. I think we've said that enough. Let's keep moving on. Of course, delayed cord clamping is a big deal. We know that that thing works. It works on a variety of levels and a variety of benefits for the child. It started first with premature infants and now, of course, moved on to term babies. The ACOG committee opinion that covers this was from December 2020, and that's committee opinion 814. And in this, it states, quote, delayed umbilical cord clamping appears to be beneficial at term and preterm infants. In term infants, delayed umbilical cord clamping increases hemoglobin levels at birth, and it improves iron stores in the first several months of life, which have a favorable effect on developmental outcome. Now, here's how it relates to what we're talking about here. ACOG continues to say in this committee opinion, quote, in preterm infants, rates of intraventricular hemorrhage and necrotizing enterocolitis are lower and fewer newborns require transfusion when delayed umbilical cord clamping is employed, end quote. So delayed cord clamping, good for preemies, good for term, and it seems to be helpful because it has less uh, or decreased rates of intraventricular hemorrhage. But here's the catch. This has to do with delayed cord clamping. Umbilical cord milking is something completely separate because most professional societies, including ACOG and SMFM, say do not milk the cord, do not push that blood quickly into that child under 28 weeks. Under 28 weeks, when remember that germinal matrix has very little autoregulation, you're going to send massive amounts of blood Massive based on the baby's weight and size uh, into the body. It's going to help. Uh, it's going to mess up the brain's uh, autoregulation, cerebral perfusion, and you may increase the rates of bleeding. So under 28 weeks, do not milk the cord. Now, look how timely this is, guys. Remember, we're not, we try never to present esoterical stuff uh, or stuff from like, oh, hey, let me give you this data from 30 years ago. I mean, if we're doing that, we're doing it in a historical context as we put the data in a line in a timetable to fit the story, okay? But this is recent because this came out in November 2023 because a new publication that came out in November 2023 randomized babies that were at EGA 28 weeks or more to either... Um, umbilical cord milking or just regular old delayed cord clamping, okay? Because the fear was, hey, we know that milking is bad under 28 weeks. And what about if they're over 28 weeks? That's pretty scary, right? I mean, not know, not knowing. Let's randomize babies and see, but the data had already been shown that it seemed to be safe. But based on this RCT that was published in the journal Pediatrics, they found that the rates of intraventricular hemorrhage were not worse in the milking group. That was just around 1% occurrence. So umbilical cord milking, if you have to, if you can't just do regular delayed cord clamp, 
then it seems to be okay over 28 weeks. That's a big thing. Now, I don't, I, I get the data. I know it. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. If, if I can, I'd rather do delayed cord clamp. But it is reassuring that uh, umbilical cord milking in infants between 28 and 32 weeks was not associated with IVH like it is in those under 28 weeks. All right, everyone, we've talked about mode of delivery. We've talked about delayed cord clamping and cord milking. Now let's get into antenatal corticosteroids because we've already mentioned this a little while ago. Everybody knows that antenatal corticosteroids are a main indication, of course, is fetal lung maturation. But remember that it comes with other friends. It's not just that. This information can be found in ACOG's committee opinion from 2017, which is number 713 on antenatal corticosteroids. So here's what the college says. Quote, neonates whose mothers received antenatal corticosteroids have significantly lower severity, frequency, or both of respiratory distress syndrome. Yeah, we get that. That's why we give it. That, that's fine. But here's how it relates to what we're talking about. Listen to this. Ready? Here's the clinical pearl. Intracranial hemorrhage is also less, necrotizing enterocolitis, and that's compared with neonates whose mothers did not receive antenatal corticosteroids. So if you ever ask, it's a great thing to stump your, your students with, your nursing students or medical students. Hey, what do steroids do um, for fetal lung maturation? Go, uh, well, it's for fetal lung maturation. Yeah, what else do they do? See, and that's, that's the catch because everybody gets fetal lung maturation, increased surfactant production, conversion of type 1 to type 2 pneumocytes, fine. But the other thing is, is that it, it prevents um, bad things in the baby's lungs, it prevents bad things in the baby's brain, and it prevents bad things even in the baby's gut. It helps prevent necrotizing enterocolitis, very similar to the effect of delayed cord clamping. Is that wild or what? So you see, it's more than just what it's intended to do, which is help with the lungs. It has all these other benefits. Additionally, the 2020 update of the Cochrane Review on antenatal corticosteroids also assessed the benefit of antenatal corticosteroids beyond uh, the lung function and states, quote, this reduces the risk of moderate severe respiratory distress syndrome, perinatal death, neonatal death, and likely reduces the risk of intraventricular hemorrhage, end quote. Okay, this brings us now to mag sulfate, and we're going to wrap this up here because I think this is also, again, super fascinating. I mean, what a incredible little mineral, right? Magnesium, because we use that in obstetrics for a variety of things. Of course, we use that for preeclampsia slash eclampsia um, progression. And even though we have better tocolytics, remember that historically it was also used as a short-term prolongation of pregnancy for um, fetal lung maturation for steroids. And of course, we use it for what we're talking about here, for fetal neuroprotection, especially under 32 weeks. Now, ACOG's stance is that under 32 weeks, it's to be used for fetal neuroprotection, but that's not everybody because some consider the majority of the data for fetal neuroprotection to be strongest under 30 weeks. But ACOG softens that because the data is a little gray between 30 and 32. So remember that fetal neuroprotection, IV mag, of course, goes here in the U.S. until 32 weeks. But here's the question. Does IV mag give that fetal neuroprotection because it decreases IVH? Well, there has been some early studies that suggested that. The earliest one was back in 1992 by Cuban et al. That's K-U-B-A-N. 
who published that mag sulfate seems to be associated with a reduced risk of intraventricular hemorrhage. And, and we all wanted that to work. And it's possible that that's a thing. But not all the data seems to support that association. It seems that mag sulfate works with fetal neuroprotection by other ways. All right. That was covered in a 2020 meta-analysis on this very subject. Okay. So does mag sulfate work by preventing IVH? It, it, it could. It's possible. Uh, there's early data to suggest that, but the majority of the data shows that it likely works by a completely different route. Uh, this was also looked at by the Bean study, which uh, I was a resident when the beneficial effects of antipartum mag, that's the BEAM study, B-E-A-M, was being done because Parkland was one of those recruitment sites, uh, showed that this likely works w- by other mechanisms, not really by, by protecting the germinal matrix. Before I briefly discuss the theorized or proposed methods of how mag sulfate works for neuroprotection, remember that ACOG... Um, has reaffirmed its stance for mag sulfate for fetal neuroprotection, which was the original committee opinion 455. That was released in 2010, guys, 2010. But that was reaffirmed again in 2023 that it should be used up until 32 weeks for fetal neuroprotection. And based on best practice, this is out of FIGO. FIGO's good practice recommendation for MAG for fetal neuroprotection says that there seems to be benefit uh, if MAG is used for four hours before that premature birth occurs, right? So if you can get MAG in started as soon as possible because benefit seems to start at four hours before birth. But FIGO continues to say, quote, if delivery is planned or expected to occur sooner than four hours, maxophate should still be administered as there is still likely to be an advantage of administration within this time frame, end quote. So MAG for fetal neuroprotection, based on who you read, definitely under 30. Uh, ACOG says under 32. Um, and there seems to be benefit if there's MAG exposure to that child for four hours before birth, almost like penicillin for GBS coverage and what's considered appropriate GBS prevention for the child, about four hours. So four hours, same thing for mag sulfate, although even if the kid seems to is going to deliver like in two hours, give mag because some mag is better than no mag at all. Mag sulfate and IVH. I mean, what a confusing issue. One of the most recent systematic reviews, meta-analysis that took a look at this was published in 2020 in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology Science, right? Obstetrics and Gynecology Science. And they looked at the rates of IVH in babies that have had mag sulfate. And be very clear, mag sulfate for renal neuroprotection, the answer is yes. But how it works, again, likely not IVH protective. Because listen, listen to what this meta-analysis found. According to this meta-analysis, after stratifying all the data and pulling them together and kicking out new numbers... They found that mag sulfate had a uh, had a relative risk of IVH of 0.8. Now, y'all remember what that means? Okay, so remember statistics, 0.8 relative risk means that the reduction in severe, moderate to severe IVF is 20%. So now 20%, I'm going to be very clear, that's good. I mean, I'll take 20% over zero. But it's not great. And here's the catch. While 20% seems impressive as a risk reduction for moderate to severe IVH, here was the problem. 
that the confidence interval, the 95% confidence interval for this relative risk of 0.8 was 0.63. Okay, I'll take that. But it was all the way up to 1.03. So remember, anytime a confidence interval touches or crosses one, um, it's kind of unclear if what you're looking at is a true number or if it's more chance. Okay. So does mag sulfate work by reducing IVH? As we said before, yeah, yeah hey, that's possible. It, it's, it's sure. But that's probably not its main mechanism of action because according to this meta-analysis and systematic review, the relative risk was 0.8. And so remember how relative risk works, right? If it's under one, it's one minus that reduction. So uh, in other words, one minus, you know, 0.8 is 0.2, so that's 20% reduction. Not negligible, but not fantastic either. Based on the majority of the evidence, guys, and here it is, we're going to wrap this up quickly. Based on the majority of the evidence, the way that, that mag sulfate seems to be neuroprotective is thought to be by uh, by helping stabilize the autoregulation going to the baby's brain, cerebral perfusion, right? It seems to maintain cerebral perfusion and prevents those rapid shifts, that uh, that uh, those gaps in autoregulation that leads to brain bleeds. It also seems to prevent excitation of abnormal neuronal fire. So it also has a direct uh, association, a direct influence on neuronal excitability. It also seems to be protective against oxidative injury because it may have a fetal uh, neuronal antioxidant effect. And lastly, mag on the baby's brain seems to be neuroprotective because it's anti-inflammatory. So there it is. The four mechanisms that we just discussed, autoregulatory, decreased excitability uh, potential, it helps against oxidative stress and may be anti-inflammatory. Those are the main methods of how MAG can give neuroprotection to the child and stabilization of the germinal matrix or uh, relation or decreased intraventricular hemorrhage is not on the top four. We'll give it a number five because it's on the list, but it's probably the last way that it does prevent it. How interesting is that? All right. I know this seems to have gone on forever because I seem like I've been talking forever, but I I can't say, wrap this up without saying something about vitamin K because vitamin K at delivery, guys, remember that's to help the baby's uh, clotting factors. And when does most IVH happen? In the hours after birth to the first five days. This is why vitamin K administration to the child is also super helpful because vitamin K deficient bleeding includes intracranial bleeding. So for patients, and I know some parents don't want to give their baby vitamin K, and like I'm just not going to give it. If that baby is preterm, you should really do your due diligence to give them education to inform them, honor their wishes, but tell them that ex ex especially in premature infants, vitamin K given to the newborn can be protective against devastating bleeding that we may not even see at the moment of delivery. And regarding oral vitamin K, because some have advocated for that, there is data for it, but oral vitamin K right now is not considered a suitable alternative to IM because oral vitamin K is three different uh, administrations. There's some compliance issues. You don't know how much the baby actually drank versus spilled. And so as of right now, vitamin K by IM injection is still the norm, although patients can decline, but especially in preterm infants, it does reduce the severity and the frequency of intracranial bleeding. 
So see everything that we've covered? That's a lot, right? So we've covered a mode of delivery. We've covered a delayed cord clamping and cord milking, steroids. We talked about mag and even vitamin K. Oh, oh, here's the last thing. I keep on saying the last thing. I promise is like the last thing. There's even been research that has looked at, hey, shouldn't we give the mom vitamin K? How about that? In other words, mom is, is, is at arrested preterm birth. She's like four centimeters or five centimeters and she's, uh, you know, 27 weeks. Shouldn't we give mom vitamin K to protect the baby? That's been looked at. Now, unfortunately, right now, the data does not show that maternal administration of vitamin K benefits the child. What benefits the child is neonatal administration of vitamin K. Okay, that was last looked at at a Cochrane Systematic Review uh, years ago, and it keeps getting reaffirmed and reaffirmed that vitamin K prior to preterm birth, maternal administration, in an attempt to prevent neonatal periventricular hemorrhage does not seem to be a thing. But giving the child vitamin K does. My goodness, that was a lot of stuff. I told you at the beginning that we had lots to cover, and we did. And as we bring this to a wrap, a quick word about vacuum and forceps at term deliveries. Remember, vacuums under uh, definitely under 34 weeks, that's a no-go. Definitely not under 32. Some people go, well, I don't know, it's... 32 to 34 is gray. Nope, nope. It's still, ACOG says, do not mess with that under 34 weeks. So just pick something else you just because of the risk of intracranial bleeding. But even at a 40-weeker or a 41-weeker, misapplied vacuum or forceps can increase the risk, of course, of intracranial bleeding. Thankfully, those risks are small, uh, and they're typically not the same bleeding as we've already discussed, like in preterm cases. But that's all I wanted to say about operative vaginal delivery. The short of it is do what you have to do to protect the child. And if you're going to use vacuum or forceps, follow the rules, be evidence-based, and make sure that your technique fits the textbook definition of its proper use. Wow, this was really long, but I hope you found it helpful. I mean, there's just lots to cover. You see how complicated this is? So if you first read the title of this episode, you're like, oh my gosh, IVH, boring. I mean, that's for neonatology. Let them deal with that. No, no, no. There's things that we can do um, that influence potentially the rates of IVF in preterm infants. So it does belong to us. We do own this just like neonatology owns it. We have shared ownership in this issue. And it's important to know for patient counseling and also for for medical decision making. So I hope you did find that helpful. All right, podcast family, that's going to be a wrap for us. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. 